Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Do you believe your son is dangerous? No. No. A Milwaukee man with a serious mental illness. He started getting more aggressive in the office and scaring the clerks. Accused of making terrorist threats. Probably the most concerning letter I've ever received. And calling the school shooter his hero. He always talks about other people doing these things. And that's bad, and I understand that. Is Timothy Heller sick? He's not a, a bad person, it's just that he's ill. Or dangerous. If we see something, we have to respond. This week on Open Record, why experts say it's harder to force someone into treatment than it is to send them to jail. We gotta fix the system. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm here with Contact 6's Jenna Sachs. Hey, Jenna. Hi, Brian. And I'm also joined by Open Record's executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So we are recording our first new episode in a little while, and we're recording it on Wednesday, October 5th, for release on Thursday, October 6th. And on Thursday, the day this is released, a Waukesha County court will decide if Timothy Heller is competent to stand trial. He is charged with a felony accused of making terrorist threats against Carroll University in Waukesha in 2018 and again this year. His family says he is no terrorist. He's mentally ill, but he refuses to get treatment. And that is sort of the crux of this whole story. Is Tim Heller sick or is he dangerous? And, and how is the system treating him? You know, Brian, early on in your script, you said that his family reached out to you for this story. I think that's important. Why did they reach out to you? It, it is an important piece of this because we had been reporting as a station, as others were, on sort of the procedures of the case. When the charge happened uh, and there's a terrorist threat against a local private school with about 3,000 students, of course, it's going to get news coverage. And the family was concerned that the person people were seeing on TV was this the person accused of being a terrorist, it's their son. They know that he's not dangerous, at least in their view, he's not dangerous. He is ill, and they wanted me to know that, and they wanted to know that the system is, in their view, broken. What They, they came to me saying, Brian, what can we do about this? We know that he's sick, but he's an adult, and he doesn't want treatment, and we've tried, but we can't force him to take medication. So essentially, they were throwing up their hands saying, what do we do? And I responded because I've done a number of stories over the years where people in similar situations have reached out, particularly families who have adult children who are struggling with mental illness um, and keep finding themselves wrapped up with the criminal justice system or finding themselves in situations where they might be, in fact, a danger to others. And they say, I, want, I don't want the community to be in danger. I don't want them to be scared. I just want my son to get help or my daughter to get help. And they have such a hard time so I wanted to spend more time looking into why is the system this way? And that was really, I think, the bigger part of the story. The um, When people reach out to us and, you know, have a, either an, a story tip or an idea or something that they want us to consider or look into, um, you know, obviously part of our job, a big part of our job is to kind of look into it before we just jump right in. So how did you kind of take what the family was asking you um, 
asking of us um, in general, but then how did you kind of take that information and then see if this was something worth even digging more into? Well, the first thing I did, and I will tell you that Donald and Bernadette Heller uh, came to me and they are, although they look awfully gosh darn good for their age, I would love to be as healthy and, and lucid as they are at their age. They're 96 years old. Um, so this is an, an older couple with six adult children. I mean, Tim Heller, their son, is 61. So my first thought was, I just want to get their concerns recorded. Let's go talk to them. Let's hear their story because who knows if their health at some point might fail and they might not be able to express these concerns so well. Um, but, and hopefully they will be able to for many years to come, but, but we wanted to get the interview done first. So I did that in, it was a really compelling conversation because I could hear, especially in his mom's voice that she wants the best for her son. He's a good person. She said, he's, he's not, he does he said he has morals and everything. Uh, he's just ill. And one of my questions for them was, well, what have you done? What have you actually tried? And they said over the years he's been in various forms of treatment at times, but it's always temporary. But more recently they said they've, they've tried to get him to take medications he refuses. They actually at one point did what we talked about in the story. They had a three-party petition signed where um, instead of waiting for a, you know, a criminal case to surface where something comes up, they actually went to the county corporation council and said, we would like to have Tim committed. And uh, Don Heller said that worked for 72 hours and Tim got right back out. And, and in Don's words, he's able to talk his way out because he's intelligent. Tim Heller has two master's degrees. Um, and, and while he is dealing with a lot of sort of delusional behavior right now because of the untreated illness, He's also smart enough sometimes to talk his way, to convince someone that he's fine. He doesn't want treatment. He's okay. He can be released in the community and take care of himself. So, so Don said they tried that once, and after 72 hours, he was back out, and they were kind of back to square one. You know, I had a lot of empathy for his parents listening to them talk about their struggles, trying to help him, trying to get treatment. They said things along the lines of he's not interested in guns, he doesn't have access to guns. But then I think about the flip side of this and how we are so scared of the next mass shooting. And we always look at the shooter's background and say there were signs. Why wasn't action taken? That's a very frequent flow of the storylines that we follow. Um, and so I'm wondering you know, what is in his background? Because there are things I think are concerning to me that he has said in letters he's written, and you outlined them really well in your reporting. Can you elaborate on, on what is in his background? Jenna, you've just hit on the crux of the tension here, because while on the one hand, you can certainly understand the family saying he's just sick, he's not dangerous, you can also try to put yourself in the shoes of the clerk of circuit courts in Waukegan, Illinois, who received some really scary letters from Tim Heller, or the uh, administrators and faculty at Carroll University who dealt with some of this behavior and have received years and years worth of now ongoing litigation and, and what they perceive as threats. And in that environment where mass shootings are such a concern, you're right, Jenna, that's what stuck out to me is we always look at a mass shooting after the fact. And we say, were there signs? And when you see a sign, you go, what's, what's the natural instinct? But to say, why didn't somebody do something? Why didn't somebody say something? You know, the old saying, if you see something, say something. Well, here was a university saying something and a clerk of circuit courts saying something. And, and I wanted to know, 
how much of this sort of pattern of behavior is in Tim's background. So I spent a day in Waukegan, Illinois, at the courthouse going through years worth of court records. He spent a number of years living in Illinois. And I went back to as far as 2011, I believe it was, where I saw the first instance where he had been kicked off of government property. In 2012, he was actually charged with a misdemeanor, disorderly conduct, for leaving a voicemail message for a local patch reporter where he said something to the effect of uh, taking guns into a social security office and shooting up the place. Um, And then it was, you know, after that case, actually, he was found to be incompetent to stand trial and spent six months in mental health treatment at Chester Mental Health Hospital. His family says that was great for him, by the way. When he was committed, they said he was treated and he came out and they said he was great. But when those meds ran out or when he stopped taking them, the father you hear in the story says he's same old, same old. He was back to the delusions and the other uh, problems. So, but this pattern goes back to at least 2011 or 2012. Um, and I didn't talk about this in the story. I didn't have time. And, and there's some element of maybe uh, the personal nature of this that gets too far. But I, I have people, I have had people ask me, is Tim Heller married? And he was. He was married. He has children. He has no contact with any of them anymore. Um, his mental health struggles cost him his marriage, cost him his kids, and cost him a lot of money because he has apparently blown through hundreds of thousands of dollars in life savings. A lot of it's spent on these court filings that he that he puts everywhere. So it's a long answer to your, to your question, Jenna, but the, the, the summation is that he does have a history of saying things that have gotten him in trouble. The Waukegan situation, the clerk of courts, was one where he was citing school shootings and saying, uh, very similar to what happened here in Wisconsin, that you're not immune. You know, this kind of thing could happen to you if people end up being treated the way I feel I've been treated. So his family was, you know, obviously relieved and pleased with, you know, the outcome or, what, you know, how... Heller was when he was in those six months of inpatient treatment in Illinois. So he's in Wisconsin now. Why hasn't or why can't or why won't, you know, whatever word you want to put in there, why hasn't Wisconsin done the same thing? Well, and, you know, that's the whole crux of this story, which is that the criminal justice system drives people into treatment, if at all. It's it's not as easy to get people directly into treatment especially if they don't want it. Um, And so in Wisconsin, it's a a thing that's happening slowly. In 2018, and I haven't actually talked, you know, it's funny, you talk about a subject you know so well, sometimes you forget to tell people the obvious. I haven't talked about why he's charged with making terrorist threats in Wisconsin. With Carroll University, he worked there temporarily, very briefly, as a physics instructor. He was hired to teach a physics class. And the students started complaining about his teaching style, his behavior. You can imagine if around that time he's sending these letters to the clerk of circuit courts in in Waukegan, Illinois, in in Lake County, that he was probably behaving strangely in classes. Students started complaining. And before the semester was even out, the university said, we don't want you here anymore. Um, We don't need your services. And he continued to persist in contacting them ramped up his behaviors, and ultimately he was charged in 2018 with a misdemeanor. Again, this is disorderly conduct at the time. That happened at the same time as the stuff in Illinois. So Illinois dealt with it more seriously. He was charged with a felony there. Um, That was 2018 as well. And he was actually sentenced to two years of probation. While on probation, he came back to Wisconsin. His family brought him here. So he was serving his probation in Wisconsin and and in that time was having all of this back and forth with with Carol. Um, Still, 
refusing to get treatment on his own. His family wanted him to get it, but he wouldn't do it. And you can't just force someone to take medications. Under the law, those with mental illnesses have a right to determine if they want treatment. And there are limits to that. There are certainly a point at which you become a danger to the community or even to yourself where uh, courts can make determinations that you're, you're not able to make that decision for yourself. But, but people who with mental illnesses, by and large, have a constitutional right not to be treated. And so Tim Heller says he doesn't want treatment. He doesn't need treatment. Um, and instead, he sort of self-medicates by sending out legal documents and briefs and writing letters. And he, he I say the self-medication, that's not my assessment. He wrote something similar to that in one of his filings. He files nonstop lawsuits, legal briefs, sends letters and emails uh, in you know both Illinois and in Wisconsin. I wouldn't be surprised if he's doing it in other states. He files things in federal court. So it is how he occupies his mind. And for him, that's sufficient. But obviously, it hasn't uh, you know stopped him from sending some of these more concerning things. Now, we're all these months into a felony charge that comes in 2022 after he's continued to repeat this behavior, makes more references to mass shootings, and is ultimately charged with a felony. Only now are they finally talking about whether or not Tim Heller should, instead of being treated as a criminal, should be treated as someone with a a mental disease. You spoke with a psychiatrist who knows a lot about mental diseases for a, a different kind of opinion in this story. Uh, What was his take on all of this? As Dr. Tony Thrasher, he is the medical director of crisis services for Milwaukee County Mental Health. And and he acknowledged right up front, this is a complex subject, but he responded right away. He said, Brian, you're dealing with some really important subjects. On the one hand, there's always a concern in the mental health field that when people talk about mass shootings, they too easily and automatically connect them to mental illness. He said, if you look at the research, There is no link between mass shootings and mental illness that's greater than any of the other causes. In fact, if you look at the sort of psychological profile and the things that lead up to mass shootings, the things that are greater predictors are things like trouble at work, problems in relationships, fascination with guns, and things like that. But there certainly are people looking at the link between these two, and I didn't put this in the broadcast story, but there are databases out there that have been created by something called the Violence Project and also by Mother Jones, Um, two different Uh, databases that have looked at mass shootings dating back 30 or 40 or even 50 years, and they have tracked that there are a large number of cases where mass shooters had some sort of mental health diagnosis. But what Dr. Thrasher said is having a diagnosis doesn't mean it's the cause. And there are some cases where you have someone whose mental illness clearly was a red flag. Maybe it was an either untreated mental illness or something very severe that really did play a role. But in a lot of cases, it might be someone who once had depression but that's not what it was. It was they were angry at their employer or they were just someone who had a fascination with guns. So it's they're very different things. What he said, though, is regardless of that connection, there's definitely an issue with the way we're dealing with mental illness. And he doesn't think it, the system is working the way it ought to be working in the state of Wisconsin. So talking about the system and kind of even going back a little further than, you know, what the current system looks like today, um, Another person you talked with in this story that I thought was interesting was a an associate professor of medical ethics, and he wrote an article about bringing back asylums and the need for them. So, like, what does that even mean? I mean, I think, you know, I think old 
black and white movies and medical asylums. Like, is that what he's talking about? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have a positive connotation when you say yeah. asylum. No, and, and, and I, I think in some ways maybe that was a clickbait title. It was a provocative title nonetheless. But he did point out that when he refers to asylums, he's not, he said the original, the term asylum didn't mean what we sort of associate. We think of the horror stories of people locked up in these state mental hospitals with terrible conditions. So, you know, some of the, te- you know, the horror movies of the, the 50s and 60s and things like that. He said that's not what asylums were meant to be. It's meant to be a place of peace and care and, and a place of, of obviously humanity for someone who's struggling with this sort of thing. What he did say when he talks about wanting to bring back asylums, if you go back to the 50s, um, there were hundreds of thousands of people locked up in state mental hospitals all across the country, and many of them were being kept for reasons that were maybe not, they didn't need to be kept out of society. They might have been inappropriate, and they were in terrible conditions that in many ways only made them worse. But what happened was the sort of pendulum swung the other way. President Kennedy signed legislation in 1963 that started what's known as deinstitutionalization. They started releasing people from these hospitals in droves. And today there's probably less than one-tenth of the people who are in state mental facilities that there were back then. And many would say that's a good thing um, because those people are getting treatment in the community rather than being locked up. And for most people who have those sorts of needs, that might be perfectly appropriate. But the pendulum has swung so far that there's a shortage of bed space either for in state mental health facilities or in private hospitals that have beds or as uh, Dominic Sisti points out, he's the medical ethics professor uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. He said residential treatment centers, places where people can live that are supportive, but that where they can get constant care, they can have someone monitoring their medications. They still can be outliving the community, but they have this sort of 24-hour assistance in some ways like a group home, perhaps. Um, those facilities don't exist anywhere near in the numbers that he says are needed. And because there's not that space, it's really hard to get people into the limited space that's available. Somebody like a Tim Heller might benefit from something like that. Um, Then again, you still have the question of, what do you go along with it? And that's another challenge. So there's a timeliness to all of this because is it Thursday there's a hearing to determine if Heller is competent to stand trial? Is that is that accurate? That's right. So so Tim's family uh, paid for a private attorney, Paul Crawford, who's been representing him in this case. And and uh, there was no, for, for a number of months, there was no attempt to declare or raise the issue of competency. But um, there was one of the, I think it was in May of this year, I was at one of the hearings and I was in a, a, a media room that set off from the, the actual courtroom. And, and Tim just wandered in and started just telling me his story. And he was sort of rambling and his attorney pulled him aside. And it seemed like that might have continued between the two of them. And moments later in that hearing, his attorney told the judge, I think I have to raise the issue of competency. And so they raised that issue in May. And now it is, or it might have been June. It was certainly earlier in the year. And now here we are in October. And just now they're finally going to hold a hearing. Two doctors have evaluated Heller, uh, one for the state, one for the defense. And from what was reported in court, I haven't seen these reports because they're confidential, but from what was discussed in open court, both doctors have said they believe he should be committed. Uh, And they, in fact, believe he should be required to take medication even if he doesn't want to. And there's a pretty high legal standard for, for that, but that's what they're recommending. Tim Heller says no. 
I disagree, I object, and so he has asked for this hearing. It is a contested competency hearing. So the same day this podcast is released, if you're listening to it on the day of its release, uh, that same afternoon, there's going to be this hearing, and it could be fairly remarkable because even though Paul Crawford tried to withdraw as his attorney, he decided to stick around just to make sure he has representation because um, as, as we've seen in a civil hearing that Tim represented himself in, Sometimes these hearings can go off the rails. He interrupts the judge frequently uh, in the civil case involving Carroll University filing for a restraining order. Uh, Tim so upset the judge that the judge finally ordered two bailiffs to uh, follow him out of the room and if he came back to take him out. Uh, so I'm not sure how this is going to go. Um, it would be hard to imagine Tim could convince the court against the recommendations of two separate doctors that he's fine to, to walk away. But we'll see. Um, it remains to be seen what comes of that. If, of course, they order him, the, I think this is important, if they do order him to inpatient treatment, it doesn't necessarily mean this case goes away. That is really, at this point in the trial, uh, or at this point in the, in the criminal case, um, just for competency restoration. And once his competency is restored, they could make the determination, do they dismiss the charges, or is he now competent to proceed with the case? And, and so there's still a lot to be determined here. Well, and I think one thing, too, just because, you know, we saw in your story the, you know, excerpts from the letters um, that he has sent and some of the lawsuits and just some of the things that he has said and the threats that he, you know, I guess you could say has made. Um, so you you talked about spending time down in Illinois and then... Obviously, we talked with the folks at Carroll University. Like, what do they have to say about all this stuff? Because if I received a letter or a lawsuit that had some of those sentences and thoughts in there, I'd be pretty nervous. They, they're certainly very concerned. They didn't want to talk for the story, I think, out of fears that they would further uh, ramp up uh, Tim's behavior uh, toward them. And that, in fact, it might lead to some sort of... Uh, you know, danger to their students. Um, obviously, we're in the middle of a school year, and, and I think this weekend is their homecoming weekend. So a lot of people are going to be on campus. So they they were concerned about that. I do want to point out that in, in uh, you know, Carroll University actually asked us not to air the story until after the competency hearing. And we had discussions about that both editorial and legally, editorially and legally. And the decision was made to go forward for a couple of reasons. One being that, um, you know, there's an important story to put out there to let people know if, in fact, he's a danger, He's still at home. He's out on a thousand dollars bail. Um, why has it taken the system this long? If in fact he is a danger, why isn't the system doing more? If on the other hand he's not a danger, why is he being treated as though he's someone making terrorist threats rather than someone who needs, uh, uh, you know, help uh, with his mental health condition? But I did talk to a captain at the Waukesha Police Department um, just to find out. You know, you are the ones who would have to provide extra security for Carroll University should something, uh, should some additional threats come out or something go wrong. What's your assessment? And in talking to uh, the police captain, he said, and uh, this was, this is almost a direct quote. He said, our two biggest concerns with, with Tim Heller are his, uh, his mouth and his keyboard. He talks a lot. He writes a lot. They don't believe he is a current legitimate threat to go out and commit a mass shooting, at least imminently. They said he doesn't have access to guns that they're aware of. He is on uh, a list that should prevent him in a background check from, from buying his own gun. He has said in court to judges, I don't have guns, I don't want guns. His family says the same, and they're not interested in giving him access. So it's one thing to write these terribly frightening things. It's another to question or know whether or not he actually has access to the weaponry he would need to pull something like that off. 
based on the due diligence we've done, it doesn't seem like he has that kind of access. But that doesn't mean that something's impossible. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think we always know how that kind of stuff happens. Um, certainly, there is a reason that these people have raised these fears, and there's a reason he's in court right now. And it, it, as I said at the beginning, this is the tension between this: the question of is this the kind of person who goes on to commit uh, mass violence, or is this a failure of the mental health treatment system? And it's time to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And once again, here to ask us that question this week is Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. What do you have, Sarah? Guys, I have been banking these questions and excited. I've got papers. Can you hear that? That's my papers flapping around with so many questions. Banking them. So you've got a bunch lined up. I can't, I can't even wait. I'm not kidding. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Today, these are some like what I call quick hitters. So I'm going to ask you, you give me your gut answer. We move on to the next one. Okay. So we'll go, we'll start with Jenna. Ready? Because I always love going first. (laughs) I know. Okay. Uh, What is the best sandwich? The best sandwich? Um, Herbert's and Gerbert's, they have a sandwich called the Narmer with no lettuce. It's good. It's got avocado and turkey. I'm sure there's a lot of, I mean, I, I love my salty and cheesy foods, so there's probably something really great out there, but the first thing that came to my mind was peanut butter and jelly. Ooh, that's a good call. I will say the best sandwich is a sandwich that someone else makes. Why do they <laughs> always taste better? <laughs> anyway, um, but I will, I guess my, my, the best sandwich, which I have just discovered, is I don't want to give away their secret, but Kurt Schultz's Deli in Brown Deer, yeah. they do sub Wednesdays, and they have a roast beef, like a beef sub. Holy cow. Wow. It's so good. That's my favorite. No Sponsored tomato. by? No, okay. never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Call me. Okay. Uh, apples or oranges? Brian. Apples. Oranges. Apples. Um, favorite smell? Jenna. Favorite smell? Uh, I mean... Ah, my brain. Uh, I like like lake, the lake smell. I don't know. Does, does the lake smell? <laughs> I, I, I feel like that was an on-the-spot answer. <laughs> that, yeah. There you go. I like the smell of lakes. Okay. <laughs> I quit. I quit. <laughs> um, no, don't quit, Jenna. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think we're sticking with food. I think fresh-baked pizza. Ooh, okay. I was going to say garlic. That's a good smell. I love the smell of garlic. Okay. Um, on the stovetop, which burner is the best burner? Oh, for me, it's it's left front. Oh. Oh, back right. Back right? Back, back right? right? That's... <laughs> wow. It's the furthest away from it, all the kids in my house. Oh, oh okay. All right. That's a, oh, that's that's a such mom a safety mom. It's the only one I use. Mom of twins speaking. Okay. Um, I say front right. We, I have I have a stovetop by the way that has is like you know four burners but then one in the middle and the the one in the middle is is the one I never use because it always seems like that's in the way that like the, yeah. Yeah, I can fit a lot of stuff and get things going in different places but use that middle one it's just right there it's in the way especially if you're using like large pots or you know several things okay and then final question Jenny you can go first what number am I thinking of seventeen Brian seven nine okay. That was super random, but I was, I will say I was closer yeah. without going over, so I win the showcase. That, you're not wrong, yeah. 
We're glad to have Open Record back on the front burner. Uh, if you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators, and it's the number six, at fox.com. Jenna, thanks for being on the podcast again. You're welcome. Smitty, thanks as always for great Open Record questions. Uh, it's off the record. Get the off, off, right. Did I just say while, open but... record questions? Thanks for great off <laughs> yes. the record questions. I mean, I did offer some great open record questions. You know what? <laughs> I got to say, the executive producer's job is to correct me when I'm wrong. So great job. <laughs> As always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.